What is going on, everyone, and welcome to episode 91 of the New Ice City Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network, and it is time once again for me to invite all of you, all the New York Rangers fans out there, to come and sit down for another one of our sessions on my virtual couch. Although, I have to tell you, if you're looking for reassurance and a lot of positivity, you might not get a ton of it on this podcast. We're going to talk good and bad. It's not going to be all negative here. But the fact of the matter is, things are not going well for the New York Rangers right now. And that's why this episode, after putting a little thought into it on Monday night and then again on Tuesday, Decide to go full mailbag because I've been getting so many questions and emails and, and tweets and all kinds of stuff from you guys. There are a lot of different topics to address. So rather than bringing a guest on, I figured I would just try to roll up my sleeves and dive in to as many of your questions as we can get to on this week's episode. So I'm going to get to that very shortly. I'm going to try not to be too long-winded in this opening because I know that we'll probably get to a lot of this stuff once we get into your questions, but I do have some things I want to say right off the top, and I do want to size up the situation and paint the full picture for you guys before we get into all of your thoughts on what's going on with the Blue Shirts right now. And again, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Things aren't good right now. The, the Rangers have lost three games in a row. That losing streak began in Anaheim just before Thanksgiving. They were coming off a game in L.A. It was the second night of back-to-backs. Those are the excuses that we've heard, surprisingly, from the man at the top, Rangers head coach Gerard Gallant. And it's valid, but nonetheless, it's still hard to excuse going to Anaheim and losing to a Ducks team that had not won a game in regulation yet this season. I'm not misspeaking. That's the truth. The, The Ducks had not lost, I mean, won a game I'm sorry, in regulation yet this season. And then they did it against the Rangers. Then the Rangers come home. They're playing the Edmonton Oilers on Saturday. The game is going well. They build a 3-0 lead going into the third period. And then they just flat out did not show up in that third period. They blew the lead. They give up four unanswered goals in the final 20 minutes of that game for one of their most, if not the most, probably the most deflating loss of the season and tension was high after that. Gerard Gallant was not happy. He made his displeasure known in the locker room and in front of the media after the game. The mood in that locker room was the most dejected mood that I think that I've seen from this team in the last year and a half in a post-game locker room. And then on Monday night, with the red-hot New Jersey Devils coming into town. And again, I'm not misspeaking on that. The Devils are red-hot. They are surging. They are one of the best teams in the NHL right now, which if I had said that to you guys a month or two ago, I think people would have laughed at me. But the Devils are legit, and they came in, and they were flat-out the better team than the Rangers on Monday night. The Rangers got off to a good start. They took a quick 2-0 lead and you felt like, well, you know, maybe this is just what they needed. Maybe they're going to show that resiliency that was such a characteristic and such an overwhelming trait for this team last season. But it did not last. Even though the Rangers went up 2-0, even after only four or five minutes had elapsed in that game, 
I found myself thinking, you know, this Devils team looks like they're pushing. It still looks like the Rangers are kind of on their heels. And then what happens? The Devils score the next four goals in a row to seize control of that game. And the Rangers just couldn't keep pace with them. The Rangers had chances. I don't want to make this out to be a completely lopsided game. And they did make a push in the third period. If we're going to give them some credit for anything, it's that they didn't fold. It looked like the game could have gotten out of hand when they came out of the second period losing 4-2. to two. But they, they pushed and they pushed and they pushed. And they did show some fight in the third period against the Devils on Monday. But it was too little too late. They end up losing that game 5-3. to three. And again, there's no argument as far as I'm concerned about this right now. The Devils are a better team than the Rangers right now, and the list keeps going on. There's a lot of teams that we could talk about right now in the Eastern Conference in particular that are better than the Rangers. The Rangers came into the season with hopes of winning the Eastern Conference, and now it looks like they're going to have to scratch and claw just to get into the playoffs. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but the recent struggles run deeper than just this three-game losing streak. Like, we could we could break down these last three games and talk about which periods went well and which didn't, and that has become a characteristic of this team. Good periods sometimes, bad periods sometimes, very rarely three good periods in one night. But the whole thing runs deeper because if you look at what's happened over the course of the last month with the Rangers, they've only won four of their last 12 games. They picked up some points here and there with overtime losses and things like that. But as far as outright winning the game, they've only done that four times in their last 12. And for a team that had the kind of expectations that the Rangers had coming into the season, that is flat out unacceptable. The the problems, we could list off quite a few things here. A lot of talk after Monday's loss to the Devils was about Igor Shesterkin. And that's because to his credit, Shesterkin came out and spoke to the media and was as dejected as I've seen him at any point in his Rangers career. I think that was the most down on himself that I had seen at any previous point. And before the first person to ask a question could even finish their question, Igor said, the goalie played bleep again. You guys can fill in the blank. I tweeted it. This is a family show. I don't know if I want to say it. There could be kids listening, but he was very harsh about his play. He said he's ashamed of the way that he's playing. He blamed himself for the loss and has clearly become very frustrated with the way that he's playing so far this season. He had a stretch that carried into that West Coast trip that ended last week where it looked like things were picking up from him. He had three or four games in a row where I thought he played really well. But the last two being the Edmonton game and the Jersey game, the team gave him multi-goal leads in both of those games, and he could not hold it. And last year, I can't even think off the top of my head of how many times that happened. If there was a time that it happened, I'm sure maybe it happened once or twice over the course of the season, but I, I can't remember. Igor was that good. He was that consistent. He carried this team through stretches when we know the Rangers otherwise had a lot of issues, but he covered up those blemishes. Right now, what we're seeing is Igor, I think if you look at the overall body of work from this season, you could say he's been he's been good, he's been okay, he's been better in some games than others, but I don't think he's been a disaster. I don't want to sit here and say that he's been bad because I think that that would be an exaggeration. But 
he hasn't played at that superhuman level that we saw last season. And while it's not fair in a lot of respects to expect him to do that all the time, the reality for this team is when Igor isn't one of the best goalies in the world, the Rangers might not be that good. Could they be a playoff team if Igor's not at that level? Perhaps, but are they going to be a, a championship contender? I don't think so. I think the only way that the Rangers get back to the level where they were at last season, especially at the end of the year when they made the Eastern Conference final, and perhaps go further, which we know is their goal, Igor has to be on top of his game. This team's model for success Maybe, unfortunately, maybe it's not a long-term recipe for success because we saw the Rangers do this with Henrik Lundqvist for years where they were reliant on their goalie. You could probably say over-reliant on their goalie and they weren't able to get over the hump because they didn't have a well-enough rounded team. And, And that is coming to the forefront for the Rangers right now. But with all that being said, I don't find it accurate or fair to sit here and say that he has been their biggest problem because he hasn't. There's a whole list of other things that are going wrong for the Rangers right now. Their five-on-five offense continues to be an issue. They've had some games where it's been better here and there recently, but the overall body of work for this team at five-on-five is not good enough. They, they do rack up scoring chances. If you look at those statistics on any of the various websites, whether it's Natural Stat Trick or Evolving Hockey or whatever you want to look at, the Rangers do seem to generate scoring chances, at least according to a lot of these analytical models, but their finishing has been atrocious. It has not been consistent enough, and that continues to be a glaring issue for this team. The depth of this team, which we're also going to talk about more on this episode, I'm sure, but the depth of this team I don't think is good enough right now. It hurt them undoubtedly to lose some of the players that they lost from last year's roster. They did sign Vincent Trocek, which hasn't completely worked out the way that they were hoping so far. Although again, it's very early in the, in the length of that contract, a seven-year deal for Trocek. But that was one guy when they were losing four other forwards that were valuable for them in the playoffs last year in Ryan Strom, Andrew Kopp, Frank Vetrano, and Tyler Mott. The hope was, the plan was, that some of the young kids would get more responsibility put on their plates and that losing those guys would be offset by the growth from the kids. That has not materialized the way that I know the Rangers were hoping so far. And I think part of that has to go on the kids. I think that many of them need to be better for this team to have success. But I also think that we could we could certainly nitpick the usage and the way that they're being deployed right now. And and that's another one of those topics that I'm sure we're going to get into on this show. The turnovers continue to be a glaring issue. The Rangers were charged. And my disclaimer when I talk about the turnover stats that the NHL puts out there is that I don't trust them, if I'm being honest with you guys. I sit there all the time and a play that very clearly to me looks like a giveaway, they won't mark as a giveaway. And so... I've said this many times, I would like to, if I had the time, if I wasn't juggling a million things during the game, to try to keep track of these stats myself. Maybe one day I'll get to that point, but right now between the writing and the tracking all the things that I try to track in the game and trying to do occasional updates on Twitter and all that, I'm not in a position to keep what I consider fully accurate turnover stats on my own. 
So I'm, I'm going to give you what the NHL had for the Rangers on Monday, and that was 23 turnovers. And that that rough number seems about right. How many were takeaways versus giveaways? We could we could argue that, but 23 turnovers they were charged with against the Devils. And if you look at the Devils' goals, at least their first four that came at even strength, pretty much each one of them came off of a turnover that created a rush opportunity. And the Devils, with their speed and their skill, were able to make the Rangers pay time and time again. And that has been a theme this season. The Rangers' puck management, especially when it comes to coming through the neutral zone, when they're trying to make plays in transition, sometimes it works, but way too often this season, those cross-ice passes or those risky passes that a lot of the players on this team like to make, they don't work out. And when the other team gets gets their stick on it, all of a sudden it turns into an odd man rush going the other way. And when Igor isn't at the top of his game and is not bailing you out as consistently as he did last year, a lot of those odd man rushes are going to turn into goals for the opposition. That is a glaring issue for this team. It was something that they seem to be spending a lot of time on at practice on Tuesday, but whatever they've been working on and doing so far has not been working because this is an ongoing issue. I also think last year, even though some people disagreed with it, the Rangers made a concerted effort to become a more physical team. They wanted to be a grittier, more in-your-face kind of team, and this year, to me, they don't have that same edge to their game. Guys are getting opportunities from the slot, from the net front. The Rangers aren't clearing the crease as well as they, they were doing last year, especially at the end of the year. They're not winning as many battles along the boards. They're a less physical team. They've been less effective on the forecheck, no doubt about it. They just don't seem to have an identity. Gerard Gallant talks all the time about wanting this team to be an aggressive forecheck team, wanting them to play faster, but in part, I think, because they don't have the personnel to play that style as well as maybe a team like the Devils, but also in part because they just seem to have trouble doing it consistently, the Rangers have not been able to execute that. And that just has you feeling like, like, you know, what is the correct style for this team to play? The identity, I think most people coming into the season felt like, was relying on their stars, Artemi Panarin, Mika Zibanejad, Chris Kreider, Igor Shosturkin. Those guys carried this team last year, and they have not been as effective at doing that. They're not producing at the levels that we're accustomed to. So when you're heavy on stars, you have these highly paid guys that you're relying on to do most of the damage for you, especially offensively, and they're not getting it done And then the rest of your roster is lower paid guys, younger guys who aren't gelling yet and and aren't giving you the depth that you want. Well, then you've got a roster where you're kind of scratching your head and trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to make this work? So all of those things are adding up to a team that right now just doesn't seem to be putting it all together. And The craziest part, I think, of all of this is is that inconsistency. Because if you watch this team, put stats aside and and whatever else aside, if you watch this team, they have spurts in pretty much every game where you're like, okay, they're picking it up. They look like they got something good going here. But then 
I can't think of of any game really since opening night against Tampa Bay when they did that for the full 60 minutes. And the, the guys in the locker room talk about the full 60 all the time, but it evades them. They go into these ruts at various points in games. Sometimes it's at the start. A lot of times it's in the middle. Sometimes, as we've seen in some of these third period collapses, it's at the end. But inevitably, they go into these ruts. And it's not just for five, six, seven minutes. It's for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And then they have trouble dragging themselves out. So so that, to me, of all these issues that we've talked about, is maybe the most perplexing. So... I just, I just killed them in a lot of different areas. I, I just offered a lot of criticism and a lot of issues that I think we're seeing. I do want to say this. Hope is not lost. They've only played 23 games. They have 59 to go. So the season is far, far, far from over. And if we are going to look at the stats, the underlying numbers do remain better in most categories than what we saw last year. Although... They're trending in the wrong direction in the last 12 games. But the thing is, we can talk about it being early and we can talk about all the time that they have left to make up ground, which they do. But the Eastern Conference, again, is looking deeper than we expected. And that is creating this feeling around the league. I've talked to a few people about this, that a playoff spot, which everyone thought was an essential guarantee going into the season, isn't quite that because... We can rattle them off, and I think we talked about this on on the previous episode. By my count, there are 11 teams that at this point, after Thanksgiving, still have the playoff hopes in their sights. And the Rangers right now are not in one of those top eight spots. You've got 11 teams essentially vying for eight spots. And because of the Devils, who arrived a lot sooner than everybody expected, because the Islanders are in second place in the division right now and having a nice bounce back season. The Pittsburgh Penguins have picked things up again all of a sudden. The Detroit Red Wings are a young, talented team that is all of a sudden crowding things in that Atlantic division, which already we know has the big four of Florida, Tampa, Boston, and Toronto. You add all that up, and if you let yourself fall into too deep of a hole now, especially before we get to Christmas, if this up and down and and a lot of losing continues for the Rangers, it becomes really difficult to dig yourself out when the competition around the conference is getting better. So things have to change, if not right away, then very, very soon. I did want to touch quickly on the Ryan Reeves trade because that happened last week, day before Thanksgiving. We weren't recording last week because of the holiday, so we didn't get to fully address it. But The Ryan Reeves trade was a very positive thing in my mind that happened for the Rangers in the last week. And that's nothing against Reeves at all because Reeves was very well respected in that locker room. From a personal standpoint, I can tell you he was one of my favorite guys to deal with. A great quote, just a fun guy to be around. Definitely enjoyed getting to interact with him, especially in the little bit of time that we had this season. Uh, So I think Reeves, the players in the locker room will miss him. And there is a leadership element that he brought that I think didn't get enough credit while he was here. I think he was a big part of helping to change the identity of this team last season in particular. But from a financial salary cap perspective, finding a team that was willing to take on the full $1.75 million cap hit that Reeves was carrying was huge 
for the Rangers because, as we've talked about many times, the Rangers are looking to accrue as much cap space as possible heading toward that March 3rd trade deadline. And by clearing Reeves' full cap hit, they're now in position, if they can maintain this 22-man roster, which is definitely the plan, to accrue roughly $6.5 million in available cap space by the time we get to the deadline. That is going to give them a lot of flexibility to go out and address some of their needs. And, And we know, we know for certain that they have some needs. But those deals, trades, don't usually materialize until we get close to the deadline, which means we're still more than three months away from that. So the Rangers, while it's nice to know that they will have the ability to make some moves, they're going to need to figure out and clean up some of these issues before we get to that point. Because if you keep losing in the next three months, you might not even be in a position to go out and make a trade. It might make more sense for you to hold on to your draft picks if you get to that point. So the current group that's in the locker room now needs to sort at least some of these issues out, and then they'll be in a position if if they need to, which again, if they're in the playoff hunt, they will need to go out and acquire, whether it's a top nine forward, a top six forward, a defenseman. There's a couple different areas they could address. The Reeves trade was big for them from that standpoint, but If we get to late February and the Rangers have slipped even further out of the playoff picture, they might not even get to use that cap space is the point that I'm trying to make. So this group, the guys that are in that room right now, they know that they need to get it on track and we'll see if they can if they can pull it off. The lineup right now, it's kind of a mess. It's it's been jumbled and juggled in every different way in the last few weeks. They had gone 10-11 games where they pretty much kept things the same. And now in these last 10 to 12 games, it's looked different basically every night. The changes are ongoing. What we saw against the Devils will look a lot like what we're probably going to see against the Ottawa Senators on Wednesday. I was at practice on Tuesday and the Rangers kept the top six intact which is Kreider, Zabanajad, and VC on the top line with Panarin, Hedl, and Kako on the second line. And I will say, you know, these opinions about the lineup are all over the place. Mine probably in a lot of ways have been all over the place. And I don't think anybody has with certainty the right answers. But I did think that it was time for Hedl to get a chance to play with Panarin because the Panarin-Trocek thing just hasn't worked out so far. And one of the only bright spots to come out of that Devils game was I thought that line looked good. I thought you definitely saw some potential there. I actually talked to Phil Heedle about it a little bit on Tuesday, and he said the same thing as well, that, that he felt like, like there was some potential there, there was some chemistry potentially there. And I think that it, it's a wise move to see if you can roll with that. But it's going to be important for them to find lines and stick with them. I've talked to multiple players in the last couple of weeks, and – All of this juggling, while a lot of them will say the right things and say, we understand it, we're professionals, we can play with anybody, you know, we haven't been playing well, we need to change something. But a lot of the guys have also said, at some point for us to get comfortable, we need to to just pick some lines and stay with them. And that's a sentiment that I've definitely sensed in the locker room recently. So I think they should give Heedle an extended run with Panarin. Maybe we'll talk about some of the other lineup things I think later on in the show. And then the bottom six, 
it does look like finally after eight games out of the lineup, Vitaly Kratsov will be getting back in there against Ottawa on Wednesday. He was skating on the third line with Alexi Lafreniere and Ryan Carpenter was in that center spot, but it's really going to be Vincent Trocek who had a maintenance day on Tuesday. He's expected to play Wednesday. And then it looks like Carpenter will be the scratch against the Senators with Gaudreau centering the fourth line in between Sammy Blay and Julian Gauthier. Even more interesting, the last little note I'll give you guys from, from Tuesday's practice is that it does look like after a long run together, the, the D pairs are probably in line for some kind of a change. They were rotating things on Tuesday and Adam Fox did not practice. So that might've thrown a wrench into the plans. He, he also is expected to play on Wednesday. But what definitely looked to be part of the plan is that Jacob Truba and Keandre Miller are going to be split up. My best guess for the D pairs, based on what I saw and heard on Tuesday, is that you're going to see Lindgren and Fox remain together as the top pair, but then you're going to see Miller play with Braden Schneider on one pair, and you're going to see Truba play with Zach Jones on the other pair. It's kind of, the Rangers won't come out and say this, but it's kind of a demotion for Truba, who I think they're going to want to maybe cut down on his minutes a little bit because let's be real about it. He's had a rough start. So I'm sure we're going to discuss all of this some more. I'm sure there's going to be some Truba questions in there. So I don't want to unload too much on that right now. Let's let's take a breath here. I'm going to take a sip of my drink and then I'm going to come back. It's not an alcoholic drink. I shouldn't mention I'm drinking a ginger ale, but <laughs> I don't want that to be misconstrued. But Maybe after I'm done recording, I'll have an alcoholic drink. But for now, I'm going to stick with the non-alcoholic stuff. Take a breath for a minute, and then I'm going to be back to answer as many of your Twitter questions as I can. We'll see how far we go. All right. Not going to dilly-dally at all here. Let's just dive right in. And we will start with the first question from Matt, who wrote, I've heard that Gallant isn't an X's and O's kind of guy. Is that the reason for his teams being so successful his first year as coach, but falling off in years two and three? The guys get confidence early on, but realize there's no real system in place as time goes on. Matt, it's not an invalid question. I, I think I've been on record saying this before. Gallant's first year last year, The big thing that we kept hearing from players is how hands-off he was, how he was letting them police themselves, how he was letting them basically play their their own game. He was demanding hard work. He had certain principles to his system, but that the system itself was simple. It was easy, and they were playing freely with him taking that approach. And we saw how that paid off for them in the long run. Of course, it helped that he had a goalie have such an amazing season in Igor Shosturkin, but there was something to be said, I think, for his approach, especially considering how much his approach differed from David Quinn, not so much in terms of the style that they play, because I think a lot of the things that Quinn asked for were similar, But and I'm talking on the ice, but off the ice, I think because Gallant wasn't as present and kind of let them do their own thing and wasn't on top of guys and didn't micromanage. I think that played really well in the locker room and the the players felt like they could exhale and they they enjoyed playing that first season under him because as a former player himself, I think he has a really good understanding of guys not wanting to be hounded and he would protect them in the media. 
He would very rarely come out and criticize his own players. I think that was very much appreciated by them. Within the walls, he would have his moments where he would stand up and say something, but he picked his spots. He didn't harp on things too much. A lot of the guys would say after a loss or something like that, he wouldn't necessarily blow up or make them watch a ton of film the next day. He would usually get over it pretty quickly and show up and give everybody a fresh start the next day of practice. So I think all of those things created this relaxed atmosphere around the team. And I think it allowed players to take ownership of the team and what went on inside the locker room and that sort of thing. So I think there was this initial boost that they got from that. But now that we're in year two, Gallant said this to us the other day. He's not planning on changing anything. What he asks from his players, which is play fast, be an aggressive forward-checking team, be physical, have a high work rate, really pretty basic stuff. That's, that's who he is as a coach. As long as the team is playing hard, that is all that he's going to ask of them for the most part. So... I do think that there's come a point where maybe some deeper adjustments need to be made. And right now, it seems like it's just more of the same from them. Maybe there is an element to this that the Rangers need to do something strategically different than what they're doing right now to unlock the potential of some of these players. I I think maybe the oversimplification with players that have more diverse skill sets, like for example, an Artemi Panarin, Maybe it makes him feel a little bottled up. He's talked about that a little bit before. Wanted to play north-south instead of east-west. And Panarin, we know, excels when he's, when he's able to play east-west and able to take the risks that he likes to play. But at the same time, guys like that do need to be reeled in every now and then. And I do believe that that's what Gallant's intention is. But, but he's repeatedly said, I'm not going to tell guys not to take risks. I'm not going to tell guys that they have to play a certain way. Our best players, I want them to have the freedom to do what makes them special. So it's sort of this give and take. My feeling on it right now is we're going to see how this approach in the long run plays out because we still are very early in the season. And again, not overreacting to 23 games. I'm sure from the player standpoint, that's somewhat appreciated, but I do want to see, as the season goes on, if a change needs to be made somewhere as far as the system is concerned, will Gallant make it happen, or is it going to be more of the same? We'll find out. All right, next question comes from Russ, who wrote, why does Gallant refuse to sit Truba just because, quote, he wouldn't allow it? He's the coach. He decides who sits, and Truba desperately needs to sit and heal. I can't say I disagree with you there. I do understand what Gallant is saying with the way that he answered that question today. Truba is a fierce competitor and the leader of this team, and anybody who is in the position where they are the leader of the team, you would you would not want them to say, hey, you know what? I could use a few games. Let me sit. Not a big deal. The team's struggling, but they'll get through it. You want the guy who's going to fight you on that decision. You want the guy who, even if he's dealing with something more serious than we think, whose arm is hanging off or leg is hanging on by a thread or whatever, you want the guy who's going to say, keep me in, coach. I want to be there for my teammates. So you have to respect that. I think 
where people are coming at Truba in certain instances, as at least you know, some people on social media take that for what you will. But people are coming at him and questioning his his leadership in, in this in these situations. I think that that's a little bit unfair. I think him wanting to stay in the lineup shows leadership. But to Russ's point, at the end of the day, if Truba is hurting the team, and I do think there have been some glaring instances where he is hurting the team. Is he the only reason that they're losing? Are they losing games simply because of him? No, that's a stretch. I think that those types of narratives take on a life of their own on social media. But have there been situations where he's clearly a detriment to the team? Does he not look like himself when he's at the top of his game? Those things are true. So it's really up to the trainers and the coaching staff to take a hard look at this and say, Will he benefit from some time off? And I don't know exactly what kind of injury slash injuries it is. Maybe it's something that regardless, it's going to be nagging him all season. If it's something that sitting out a couple games would allow time to heal, then I think you should seriously consider doing that. But if it's the type of thing where the only way that it will heal is if he doesn't play for three or four months and he can fight through the pain and they're finding ways to help him tolerate it, then, listen, this guy's a professional athlete. Their pain tolerances are incredibly high. You wouldn't believe some of the things that these guys go through behind the scenes. So it's hard to sit here and say he absolutely should be taken out or he absolutely should be left in. We would need more details on the specifics of the injury to really make that determination. But I do think that it's a conversation that both for the good of the team and for the good of the player that they should be having. So not going to sit here and say definitely yes, definitely no, but it's something worth asking, which is why I asked Gallant that question today. And it's something that if these struggles continue, I really do think they need to be examining behind the scenes as much as possible. All right, let's go to the next question. Okay, this one comes from Eddie Nathan, who wrote, What is the obsession with VC? I understand he's responsible defensively and plays an honest game in all three zones, but he's limited offensively, he doesn't drive play, and he's not a finisher. VC is a bottom six player, and that line was at its best five on five with Kako. What gives? So I'll say these two things on that one, Eddie. I agree with you that this team is better off when VC is in the bottom six. I absolutely think he deserves to be in the lineup. I think he has been, in many respects, one of their better forwards so far this season, but he's out of place on the first line. A championship caliber team is probably not going to have him on the first line for the entire season. Now, part of the issue is there aren't a whole lot of guys that are playing well enough to say, okay, well, that guy deserves to be on the top line. Your point on Kako, I think, is right on, though, and I I will reveal this. I sat down at Kako's locker and talked to him for a while the other day. I wrote about it pregame on Monday, and he told me that the best he's felt playing hockey, and he felt the best hockey that he's played since he got to the NHL, was the opening of the season, those first 10, 11 games when he got to play with Zabanajad and Kreider. He said he felt comfortable there. He said he felt like those guys trusted him. He said he felt like his strength of holding on to pucks, fighting through traffic in the corners, being able to set teammates up. He felt like all of those things played really well with those guys. And he seemed to feel like that was 
his preferred spot. Now, he didn't say those words exactly, but that's just the impression that I got as far as it being his preference. He said he he didn't begrudge the decision to move him because you could look at their expected goal rate for that line. I know they rank as one of the best lines in the league, but their actual goal rate was not great. I think they only produced four goals together, which is not enough production from your top line. So Kako said, listen, I understand that we weren't finishing enough to justify keeping us together, but because of the scoring chances they had, because of how good at possession they were, they constantly had possession of the puck, that line. That has by far been the Rangers' best possession line so far this season. Kako felt like if we stayed together, eventually those goals probably would have come. And I think when you consider everything that we've seen, all the different lineup combinations that we've seen, there's a strong argument that that has been the best one so far this season for the Rangers. So, Eddie, to your point, I very much could get on board with seeing Kako back in that spot. I very much agree that they'd be better off with VC in the bottom six. But I also do look at the totality of this roster right now, and they are at least one forward short in the top nine, if not two. And so that has necessitated VC moving up because he has outplayed a lot of the other guys who are vying for those spots. So ultimately, I do think he'll end up back in the bottom six. I just don't know exactly when that's going to happen. Okay, next question comes from Rob Andro, who wrote, with the new cap space and all the cane chatter happening, I still think adding a defenseman should be the Rangers' main concern. Agree? We should have seven reliable defenders, and this coach seems to think he only has five. If one of Fox, Miller, Lindgren gets hurt, things get ugly fast. So, Rob, I think it's a fairly valid point. I do think that increasingly there is an argument that the Rangers should target a defenseman at the trade deadline, especially because Zach Jones has yet to really seize hold of that spot on the bottom pair. I do think that the constant yanking in and out of the lineup has not been the best thing for him. Now, Zach would never say that. Zach, in my conversations with him, has said all the right things about coming in and out of the lineup, and he always puts the blame on himself when he does get scratched. But my feeling is that for a young kid like that who's trying to gain confidence at the NHL level, who's trying to figure out what works and what doesn't, At the NHL level, even though I don't think he's been great, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I think he's been really good. I can't imagine that feeling like one mistake or one misstep is going to cost you your spot in the lineup helps you play loose and play free and play to the best of your ability. So my opinion is that there's something to that, not just with Jones, but with any young player, Vitaly Kratzoff, whoever it might be. I I think that feeling that you're walking on eggshells It's hard for me to believe that many guys, I mean, listen, there could be guys that are motivated by it. I'm sure some of these really fierce competitors, knowing that they have to play their best to stay in the lineup, that could drive them. And maybe that's what Gerard Gallant is looking to do. But I, I also have to think that there's an element of concern on the player's part that if I do something wrong, that might cost me my lineup spot. So I'll say that about Jones. Personally, I would like to see Jones 
get an extended run, let's say a month or so, where his spot is locked in, he doesn't have to worry about it, and you really try to see what you have by playing him multiple games in a row and taking the good with the bad and then making an evaluation after that. But with all that being said, yes, I do think the Rangers could use a defenseman. I do think there's a very good chance that they look to add a defenseman. But for me, looking at this team and the issues that we've talked about, specifically the five-on-five offense and the lack of depth, if you're asking me what my number one priority at the deadline is, it is going to be a forward 10 times out of 10. If they can if they can get a really big-time impact forward who drops everybody else down, makes all the pieces fall into place, makes this lineup look whole, then I think that that is something they need to do. Or if they can go out and add two forwards that maybe don't cost as much but would make the whole lineup look deeper, much in the way that they did by adding Andrew Kopp, Frank Vetrano, and Tyler Mott last year, if you can get either one really big impact forward or two forwards that that improve the overall depth and, and slot in and play roles effectively, I would do that at the expense of adding a defenseman if you needed to. Of course, if you could do both, that would be great. But my priority list starts with a forward right now, and I think it'll stay that way because I just think that the Rangers are at least one forward short in their top nine, and I can make an argument for two. All right. Let's go to Ice Cold Takes podcast, who wrote, in terms of a diagnosis of the Rangers' problems recently, do you think it stems from frustrations of not being able to put the puck in the net despite controlling play and having great chances? Has the inability to score frustrated the team enough to get off their game? I think the answer is yes. I think that the Rangers had these stretches, especially in the first month of the season where they were playing pretty well. They weren't playing great, but they were playing well enough to win a lot of these games, but countless times. I mean, I could think of so many for so many individual players where you felt like this guy had an opportunity that that was prime, that was right at the net front or right off of a rush or right, you know, on a far post wide open pass, that sort of thing. And They were either robbed by a goalie or missed the net or didn't convert for some reason. And the more that that kept happening, they kept saying the right things. They kept saying like, well, if we keep getting those chances, eventually the goals will go in. But when the goals keep not going in, that has to become a mental thing. That has to get into your head a little bit. And I do feel like it's snowballed for the Rangers. I do feel like those games where they were getting frustrated because they weren't converting enough of their chances to win. It sort of took on a life of its own and has become a thing that is now in a lot of ways led to the position that they're in where their overall play has deteriorated because those frustrations kept mounting and mounting and mounting. So yes, I do believe that the frustrations of not being able to finish their opportunities have become a palpable thing. Eventually, you have to believe that if they keep getting those chances, they'll go in. All the players keep saying that, but but to me, it's definitely had this ripple effect where it's carried over from one game to the next and has definitely made their confidence a little more fragile. It's definitely made them feel a little less resilient because last year, they always seemed to find a way to score that clutch goal at the end of the game that got them back in it, and this year, those goals haven't been coming.
All right. Let's keep going. John Albanese wrote, what are the vibes like in the locker room during this tough stretch? And we're actually right underneath a very similar question from Josh Adam Z, who wrote, do you sense any friction or people blaming others inside the locker room for what's happening? Any player or coaching divides occurring? As far as the locker room, no. I am not sensing any friction between the players. There has been no finger pointing. A lot of the players, Igor in particular, the other night, are putting it on themselves and saying, we need to be better. And uh, even today, I was actually talking to a couple different guys about staying positive through this, and they all do seem to be doing that. I don't think that there is panic in that locker room at this point. I think there's disappointment. I think there's frustration. I think there's certain levels of anger. You saw that from Igor, not just in the post-game comments that he made on Monday, but during Tuesday's practice, he gave up a goal and slammed his stick on the crossbar. So this is a frustrated group, no doubt about it. But I don't think there are rifts in the locker room right now. I don't think that everybody's looking for somebody to blame or anything like that. I think the players have stayed pretty tight together through this ordeal. If it continues... If we get into the second half of the season and they're still trending to be outside of that playoff picture, maybe those things will change. But I do think that for the most part, the guys still seem to be on the same page and are saying a lot of the right things, not just to the media, but just you know what I observe in the locker room. It still looks like a lot of these guys very much enjoy being around each other and aren't sulking or, or anything like that. Now, what I wrote this week And what I will say here on the podcast is, to me, I think the head coach, Gerard Gallant, has not put enough of this on his own shoulders. That's not to say, I want to be very clear about this, that I blame him for everything that's going on. I think there's plenty of blame to go around. And and for me personally, while I think that he's made mistakes and we can certainly get into that, At the end of the day, the players play. And when a team is losing, my tendency is always to look more at the players than it is necessarily to look at the coach, unless the coach is making some absolutely glaring mistakes. And I do think that he he has made some mistakes recently. I do think that the constant lineup shuffling has been unnecessary, and I think it's made this team even more out of sorts. I do think that there has been a reluctance, as we talked about in an earlier question, to adjust on the fly. I think changing the lines, but asking them to play the same way is not necessarily the winning formula. I think there needs to be a balance between the two. I think there have been some line combinations that clearly work better than others, but I don't think that the line combinations, it's easy to fixate on that. I get it. I absolutely get why that's such a hot topic of conversation, but I don't think the lineup decisions change everything. I don't think all of a sudden that that makes them not have any of the problems that we're talking about. We've mentioned this a few different times. The personnel is an issue here. Having glaring holes in the top nine, just if you move the pieces around, doesn't all of a sudden cover up the holes. You're still going to be a piece or two short in the top nine. So I can't blame the coach for all of the issues as far as the lineup goes right now. But with that being said, from an accountability standpoint, and if you guys will indulge me on on a sports crossover reference here, I know a lot of you are probably football fans, and if you're not, I'll give you the quick rundown. But look at what happened to the New York Jets a week ago 
when they got embarrassed by the New England Patriots. Their offense was clearly inept. Their quarterback played terribly. It would have been easy for the coach to come out and say, Zach Wilson needs to be better. And he did eventually bench him, so that should be said. But the coach instead and the offensive coordinator did the same thing. Both came out and said, it starts with us. We need to be better. We need to coach them better. So just by coming out and saying that, I think coaches take pressure off of the players. I think they show leadership. I think it just has such a trickle-down effect for the team. And I also think from a PR standpoint, for the fan base, the fan base appreciates people who stand up and raise their hand and say, I need to be better. And Gallant has been a little reluctant to do that and has been a little defensive about some of this stuff. You know, he's come out multiple times now in the past week or so and pointed to the tough schedule. And it's true. The Rangers have had a tough schedule. They played a lot of back-to-back games. I'm sure that that's not easy for the players. But from the perspective of the fans, they don't want to hear that. That comes across as an excuse. When he comes out and says all the players need to step it up a notch but doesn't say I also need to step it up a notch, I'm not sure how well that plays. When he comes out and is asked about the Rangers' third period collapse against the Edmonton Oilers, and he says, well, I was watching the Florida Panthers later that night, and the Florida Panthers also had a third period collapse. Well, I don't think anybody in New York cares about that. So it just seems like there's been a little bit more deflection than there has been ownership. And again, I'm not saying that I'm going to sit here and say on the podcast or write in my stories, this is all Gallant's fault. He's a terrible coach. You know, I know there's some chatter already about him getting fired. I I do not think by any stretch that the Rangers are at that point yet. If we get to the end of the season and they're out of the playoff picture or if things really take a bad downward turn in the next few weeks where they're on a really bad losing streak, we can readdress that question. As for right now, they're not firing the coach tomorrow or this week or anything like that. I'm not trying to, to, to even have that conversation quite yet. But the point of what I'm saying here is accountability matters. And I think it sends a strong message, not only to the players in the locker room, but to the fan base when the guy who's at the top, the face of the franchise, the guy who makes all the decisions says, I need to be better. And then you could go and talk about which players need to be better. That's fine. But you need to put it on yourself first. At least that's my opinion. And I think that that is going to send a strong message to the players and it's going to play well with the fan base. I think the fan base wants you to take responsibility in these situations. And it just seems to me, and this is what I wrote the other day, that there's been some deflection. There's been some excuses thrown out there. And maybe that message is getting across. The next game, after they lost to the Devils on Monday, he did say the coaches need to be better. So maybe that message is getting across a little bit more. And maybe it's a, it could be a market thing too. You know, This is a guy that hasn't coached in a market quite like New York. And I think here, probably more than a lot of other places, that accountability factor matters. I think I've talked about my short time covering the Yankees, where Derek Jeter, after every game, was at his locker room and would always, always, always put the blame on himself before he would put it on anybody else. And I think that that is a leadership quality that in tough times really makes a difference. And so I'm not going to get into the you know hot seat stuff quite yet. I don't think we're there yet. But I did think, 
And that that's eventually why I wrote about it because it had been multiple days in a row where it just sounded like there wasn't a whole lot of, hey, it starts with me. And I think that that's an important thing to say when times are tough like they are right now for the Rangers. And I did sense a little bit more of that on Monday after the loss to the Devils. I, you know, I don't know how much the players even pay attention to that necessarily. I haven't heard any players specifically take issue with that. But as far as the public message, to me, it's an important position to take for the leader of the franchise. So that is where we'll leave it on that. Okay, let's keep going here. We're going to move to the here's a, here's a little more of a positive question. <laughs> this one comes from Paul who wrote, in the midst of so much negativity and everything seemingly going wrong, what are some improvements you've seen this year? Could be individual or team. All right, Paul, you're putting me on the spot here a little bit because I think a lot of the focus has been on what's going wrong, and that's where I've been putting a lot of my efforts recently. But there are some things that we could point to on this team that have that have gone pretty well. I think Adam Fox, I've told you guys this before, is having a really strong overall season. I think him and Ryan Lindgren have definitely reemerged as the clear-cut top pair for this Rangers team. We talked about some of the struggles with Truba and Miller, but Fox and Lindgren, in my mind, have been pretty consistent. You've seen the importance of Lindgren. When he's missed a few games here, it's really hurt the Rangers. So I think that the Fox... Lindgren pair has been a bright spot, and Fox in particular has probably been the team MVP so far. I think Philip Heedle, we talked about him getting a chance now to play with Panarin. I think he's earned that opportunity. He had that stretch where he missed some time. That set him back a little bit for sure. But when he's played, he's been good. He actually leads, I believe, all forwards on the team in even strength points per game. If you just average it out on a per game basis, I'm pretty sure Philip Heedle at the moment has a higher points per game average than any forward on the team. And so I think he's earned that spot on the second line, absolutely should get some extended run there. And the speed element that he brings, which overall I think the speed element is lacking for this team, but Heedle brings it for sure. I think he's been a dangerous player, and I think he's a guy that they need to use more. So Heedle has been a bright spot. I know people might not want to hear this, but I do believe that there are, are signs of Capo Caco getting ready to potentially break out. If you look at individual high danger scoring chances for this team, last I looked, Caco was tied for the team lead at five on five in that. He has not been finishing enough. That has to happen. Inevitably, if he does not score more goals and get more points, he is going to be looked at in a different light. But his strength in the puck, his overall body of work, his overall game, to me, has been strong. He looks like a top six forward to me. I We talked about this earlier with Eddie's question. I think that he should have stayed on that top line with Zabanajad and Kreider. And I think he... he did enough there, even though enough goals didn't come at the time to say, okay, we got to keep this going. So Kako, there's been some bad, namely the finishing, but I think a lot of other things you like what you see from him so far. So I would put Kako in the encouraging category so far this season. Trying to think if I'm missing anything else. We mentioned VC. I think he's been a nice find for them on the PTO. 
I do think that while the Rangers turnovers have been an issue, their overall D zone coverage as far as how many shots against they're allowing per game and how many scoring chances they're allowing per game, those numbers are all down. So I do think that there have been some fairly positive developments in that regard. So that's another thing that I think if they can cut down on those neutral zone turnovers that lead to odd man rushes and then continue to play the way that they have in the D zone for the most part, they're going to be okay. So that's another fairly positive thing I could say about the Rangers so far at this point. Trying to think if I'm missing anybody. I thought Braden Schneider had a nice stretch recently. Took a dip a little bit again the last couple games, but the entire team has done that. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm running out of good things. I thought Artemi Panarin started the season great for the first 10 games, but I think that there's been a very obvious dip in the last 12 or so games, not just because he hasn't been putting up points at the same pace, but he just hasn't looked as confident. So I just took a positive and turned it into a negative there. Yeah, I'll probably cut my losses here, but th- those those are a handful of positive things I would say about the Rangers so far this season. All right, let's keep cruising here because I'm only going to take a couple more. I've been going, it says, for over a half hour now in this segment. All right, Joey's a rambling man wrote, Vince, I feel that the Rangers do the worst job in promoting their prospects in any news on what's going on in Hartford. He, he basically goes on to trash Hartford. He said he has the AHL package on his laptop and it's been inferior production. Yes, the Hartford Wolfpack have been disappointing this season. They're in last place in their division. And I actually earlier was looking at some of the stats there. A lot of the guys you were hoping to see have good seasons are not, at least point-wise, not doing much. The leading point scorers on the team right now are Tim Gettinger and Andy Walensky. Those are not the two guys I think many people were predicting to lead that team in points. And they both only have 10 in 16 games. So they are not scoring very much right now. The Hartford Wolfpack, a lot of the top prospects who were there have not been blowing the doors off and and forcing their way into consideration for the NHL roster. Will Cooley only has seven points. Bobby Trevino only has six. Gustav Riedal, he missed some time. You know, points aren't really his game. I've heard some some pretty decent things about him, but he only has five points in 12 games. Matthew Robertson on the blue line, he started strong the first couple games. I had some people say he looked pretty good, but he hasn't had a point in a while. He's negative eight on the season. He, I don't think, has done enough to really force the Rangers to consider swapping him and Jones uh, as far as their bottom pair defensemen go. Carl Henriksson in his first season over from Sweden, only three assists in 16 games, so you're not getting a whole lot of production out of him. Ryder Korzak, the Hartford Wolfpack, only played him in five games before deciding to send him back to the WHL. So he obviously didn't do enough to stick around in the AHL. So there's not really a whole lot right now to feel great about with the Wolfpack. There's nobody right now, as far as what I can see, that you look at and you say, okay, the Rangers really should be considering calling this guy up soon. So there's some work to be done there for sure. All right, let's keep going here. Tommy Lasagna. Good name there, Tommy. Wrote, what are your thoughts on Drysaddle ripping Truba's stick out of his hands after scoring the winner on Saturday? You know, I've seen people, I didn't see the video until the next day, but I've seen a lot of people taking issue with this. And I get it. It doesn't look great. 
it looks like he's just letting Drysaddle walk all over him in his own building and the Rangers had blown the lead and they weren't showing any fight and the whole collapse was embarrassing for the Rangers and that has kind of become the visual of it. That's become what everybody's pointing to is showing, you know, the Rangers had no fight at the end of that game. Just look, Truba didn't stand up for himself when the guy who had just scored the game-winning goal skated by him and knocked his own stick out of his hand. And I get it. Had Truba dropped the gloves and went after him and made a whole scene out of it, maybe that would have been a galvanizing thing for the team. I know the fan base would have enjoyed seeing it. It it would have showed some spunk, I guess you could say. But if you look at the situation, Drysaddle scored with, I think it was about two minutes left in that game. The Rangers were down by one. How bad would it have been for them if he would have taken a penalty in that situation and the Rangers who were trying to score a goal to tie the game end up in a PK situation? So, you know, I think it would have looked pretty silly on Truba's part had he gotten into a fight or gotten an instigator penalty or did something that caused a penalty when the Rangers were down by one goal with two minutes to play. So, you know, I can't get too upset about that if I'm being honest with you guys. I I think that's one of those things that kind of takes on a life of its own on social media. He would have gotten crushed had he taken a penalty that would have, at least the perception would have been that it cost the Rangers the game there. So, listen, I I don't know if Drysaddle was trying to disrespect him. I don't know if he just all of a sudden had a stick up on him and just instinctively swatted it away. I don't know what Drysaddle's intentions were on that. I don't know if Truba thought about going after him in that situation, but I don't know. A a retaliation at a point when the game is still hanging in the balance, to me, is usually not going to be a good idea. You want to give your team the best opportunity to come away with at least a point there. You want to give your team the best opportunity to tie the game. And getting into a fight, risking getting penalized in that situation I think it's a wise move to err on the side of caution and focus on trying to tie that game. That should be their foremost concern there. So I get it. Had he gotten into a fight, maybe he would have sent a message to the team. I know the fan base would have appreciated it, but I I can't kill him for that. I I don't think that it would have been a move that comes across as well thought out. I think it would have been a reactionary move, and I think it would have potentially made it harder for the Rangers to tie the game, even though, as we know, they ultimately lost the game and didn't tie it. So that's my two cents on that. All right. I think we're going to do one more question here. And it comes from Ala Blucher, who wrote, the last time the Rangers developed a skater to play a point per game in a season was Zubov back in the 90s. All the other picks from J.T. Miller to Buchnevich and even Zook hit that point per game mark after they were traded. So he asked what I think the reason is behind it is that the development department, the skills coach, our style of play uh, for, to play free agents over the kids. How is this possible? It is an increasingly valid question. And I really, for in my mind, it came to the forefront in the game against the Devils because... You look at that Devils lineup. Jack Hughes is a star. He's awesome to watch. I I really enjoyed watching him play the other night. He has developed into a big-time player. But Jesper Bratt is a guy who has been highly productive 
for the Devils so far this season. Nico Heischer is a guy who has been highly productive for the Devils so far this season. That's three guys who are 24 or younger and have posted 25 points or more. They are leading the Devils right now in scoring. And listen, Hughes and Heischer were both guys that were number one overall picks. So you know the talent is there. But Brat, I believe was a fourth-round pick. I haven't, I'd haven't. i have to double-check that. I think he was a fourth-round pick. So that was a great job developing by the Devils. And, and what also strikes you about those guys is you look at the top six for the Devils. You look at the power play for the Devils, the, pa- the first power play unit, to be specific. It's all these young guys. They are handing them the keys to the kingdom. They are letting them flourish for better or for worse. Last year, it was obviously for worse because the Devils stunk. But now you're seeing the fruits of that. And it does make you question when you look at this Rangers team. I wrote this in my story on Monday night. The Devils have 11 players on their roster who are 25 or younger. That's the same exact amount as the Rangers. But those three guys I just mentioned for the Devils all have 25 points or more this season. Then you look at the Rangers, young forwards, all the Rangers forwards who are 25 or younger. Nobody has more than 11 points out of that group that would be Heedle. So clearly the production isn't matching. Part of that, I think, is that the Devils have better players in those spots. I don't think any of the guys that the Rangers have are at the level of Hughes, Heischer, or Bratt right now. But the Rangers have some pretty highly drafted guys. They have Alexi Lafreniere. They have Capo Caco. Number one pick in the draft, number two pick in the draft. And while those guys have not developed as much as you would like them to. I also think that if their usage was different, if those guys were getting power play minutes, for example, you'd probably see higher point totals from them. So it's a give and a take. Part of me feels like the players that the Rangers have have not done enough to take the next step. And ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the players that will be judged for that. And, and we still have a long way to go with a lot of those guys. I mentioned Heedle and Kako. I think have both had strong seasons in a lot of respects so far and feel like the best is yet to come with those guys. Lafreniere, he feels like he's in a little bit of a slump to me right now. I don't know if the right answer is keeping him on the third line because he hasn't played well enough to merit a move up in the lineup, or if the right answer is to move him up because you got to get him going and developing him is is a priority. It needs to be at the top of the Rangers list as far as things that they want to accomplish in the next couple of years. So it's an interesting, interesting question. I do think the Rangers have been far too reluctant to play their young guys in big situations. You understand why, for example, on the power play, because they have Panarin and Zabanajad and Kreider, and those are established guys that are highly productive in those situations. But for the betterment of the franchise, look at what the Devils did. They went through the growing pains the last couple of years. They fed those guys big minutes. They put them out there in important situations, and now they're flourishing. And for the Rangers to have the long-term run that they would like to have, Lafreniere, Kako, Hedl, even Vitaly Kratsov, at least two or three of those guys need to get to the level where we see Hughes and Heischer and Bratt, or at least close to it. So to make that happen, I find myself questioning whether or not the Rangers need to put more on their plates. And if they sink, so be it. 
Then you could point fingers at the guys who decided to draft them. Although I do think in the case of Lafreniere and Kako, the entire league would have taken those two guys in the same spot. So I find it hard to fault the draft pick decisions on those guys. The development process, that's a bigger question. And again, it comes down to this balance between not force-feeding them minutes when they're not ready or when they haven't earned it, but also knowing when the right time to take off the training wheels and let them roll for better or for worse because that is ultimately how you're going to find out how good these guys can be, and that's ultimately how they're going to get the confidence to unlock their potential. So it's something I think the Rangers have to be weighing right now, especially if the losing continues. Can you keep riding these veterans who, listen, Panarin and Zibanejad and Kreider, those guys are going to need to be important players for you if you're going to accomplish your ultimate goal of winning a championship. But the same thing goes for the young guys. And if you want them to flourish, if you want them to live up to their potential, are you putting them in the best positions to succeed right now by not giving them power play minutes, by moving them down to the third line or changing the lines in general all the time? Those are legitimate questions. Those those are very legitimate questions. And... We'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, I do think that it's something I'll be keeping a close eye on for the rest of the season for sure. All right. That's going to do it for this week's episode. Turned out to be a long one. Still a lot of questions in here I didn't even get to, but I appreciate you guys submitting them. I knew it would get a big response. I knew that this week was probably a good time to address it because there were going to be so many different topics that I wanted to get into. So glad this worked out for the mailbag episode. We'll be back next week on the normal schedule. I think yeah i'm going to vegas i think on wednesday with the team next week so i'll probably record before i leave and have the new episode for you guys on a normal thursday schedule next week but for now i'm gonna get going because we got a sick baby at home so i'm gonna go check on how the little guy's doing and get settled in for the night i hope you guys enjoy the rest of your week we'll see if the rangers do some things to make you feel a little bit better about the state of things again long way to go 59 games so Let's not go throwing in the towel quite yet. Everyone take care, be well, and I will talk to you next time.